Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you really so much for, uh, for joining us today for our weekly Sapir conversations on issues of import uh, related to the war between Israel and Hamas, which is now in its 33rd day. Today is November 8th, 2023, which means we are now more than a month removed from the Hamas massacre on October 7th that left around 1,400 individuals murdered in a single day, thousands more physical injuries, and really left a country terrorized by the notion that more than 240 of its citizens and citizens of dozens of other countries worldwide we're being held as hostages in what is among the largest mass abductions in modern history. This also means that yesterday, November 7, marked Shloshi, right? That 30 day mourning period following the burial of a loved one. Yesterday, a friend of mine, Aaron, well, he marked the period by recounting how Every day since the massacre, he's kind of watched an otherwise mundane 30-second clip of young men and women innocently dancing, drinking, flirting, walking around the dusty grounds of the Nova Music Festival. A barrage of missiles from Gaza in the background. Sometimes, he said, he finds himself following just one person and wondering what happened to that one person. And then he stops himself. Sometimes he'll find himself silently screaming, get out, run. Do you know what's about to happen? This was the exact moment in time, he wrote, that for Israelis and Jews, our lives and the way we experience the world forever changed. Shloshim, 30 days. But here's the thing about Shloshim, right? It's, it's marked by a mourner who lost a family member. It's a deeply personal and familial experience. It's not a national one, certainly not an international one. But that's exactly what happened over the last day or so when Jews in Israel, in the United States, and around the world, including, I presume, some of you on this call and some of you who might listen to this conversation afterwards, you attended these virtual and in-person events and ceremonies to mark the Shloshim period, to account for the collective sense of grief and the persistent sense of anguish. Why? Why did Jewish communities do that? What was pulling at each community or each individual to memorialize that grief? What is the feeling or sensibility call on you to do now after Shloshim, after that morning period? How does it orient how you're conceptualizing the war? How you read the news? How you scroll through the thousand WhatsApp groups that you suddenly find yourself on? How does it impact your understanding of your own responsibility? And what does Jewish wisdom and tradition have to say about it? We are deeply privileged to have two scholars and leaders within the Jewish community help us make sense of this moment, help us understand the ethos of Jewish peoplehood. 
Rabbi David Wolpe is a rabbi's rabbi. Until a few months ago, he served as the longtime rabbi at Sinai Temple and now serves in an emeritus capacity. Among his current affiliations, Rabbi Wolpe is a visiting scholar at the Harvard Divinity School, a rabbinic fellow at the Anti-Defamation League, and a senior advisor at the Maimonides Fund. And he wrote a thought-provoking and deeply compelling piece in Sapir last month called Wisdom in the Face of Destruction. I encourage you to read it. And if you read it, I encourage you to reread it. Michal Biton is an educator's educator. Until a few months ago, she served as a scholar in residence at the Sholem Hartman Institute, and now serves as a research fellow. Among her many affiliations, she is the Rosh Kehila and co-founder of the Downtown Minion in New York, and a Sachs scholar at the Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Legacy. And I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight that we are also marking the third yard site of Rabbi Sachs, who passed away on November 7th, 2020. Michal wrote a wonderful piece in Sapir last week called That Pain You're Feeling is Peoplehood. And uh, if you read it, I encourage you to reread it. And if you didn't, I encourage you to read it. But also, I encourage you to watch her remarks at the rally at NYU last month. And if you didn't, that's on you because uh, a million views and counting. Um, so please take a second to watch uh, really her stirring remarks at NYU. And so welcome to you both, Rabbi David Wolpe, welcome. Michal, welcome. So let's start with uh, you, Rabbi Wolpe. Help orient all of us around this concept of peoplehood. How does Jewish tradition understand its demands? How have we talked about it? Is this nomenclature that we've used in the past or is it new? If it's new, What's its correlation to how we've talked about in the past? Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And of course, it's a pleasure to be here with my colleague um, and uh, to discuss these together. We started at the very beginning as a people, because when God says to Abraham, Lech Lecha, go you, realize that Lecha in Hebrew is singular, but he goes with Sarah, because the two of them are really one, and a whole retinue. And God promises him, you won't be Avram, you'll be Avraham, the father of nations. In other words, peoplehood is built into our spiritual DNA. And we went through the desert as a people. Um, we came into the land of Israel as a people. When you want to say the central prayers of the Jewish tradition, remember the Shema is a declaration, not so much a prayer, but the Amidah, the, the Kedushah, which is the holiest moment in the service. You have to have a minyan. You have to have a group of people around you when you want to say the Kaddish. You can't mourn alone. You have to mourn with others. Um, the, the Protestant philosopher Whitehead said religion is what one does with his solitude, but that's not true in the Jewish tradition. Religion is what one does in community. I don't know of a Jewish community anywhere that when it's established itself doesn't immediately put down communal institutions. Um, the tamhui, the public plate to take care of the widow and the orphan and, and on and on. So I think the way to think about peoplehood, even today, is not by the second hand, but by the calendar. We tend to really see things the way they are at this exact moment. 
but we're an ancient people and we have been a people for a very long time. And the last thing that I'll, I'll say that indicates our peoplehood is sometimes people talk about Judaism as a religion. But you know, if tomorrow I said, oh, you know all that stuff I believed yesterday, I was wrong. What am I now? You would say Jewish because we're something religious is a part of it. We're like uh, a religious family, a religious tribe, a religious people. Um, my colleague and friend Dara Horn says the reason we don't fit in any of the Western boxes is we were created before the box. So I think of us as the before the box people, not out of the box, but before the box people. Um, and, and that's who we are. A before the box people. Yeah. Who sometimes colors outside the lines. Sometimes color outside. Well, the, the marvelous part of being uh, people is not that we always are unified or agree, because we surely don't. You can't find a small enough number of Jews not to have a disagreement, but that there is something I really believe we were talking about this right before we went on, so inherent in the deep peopleness of the Jewish people that those who are completely unaffiliated find themselves now being stirred in some way. And, and I'll just finish with one story. Many years ago, I had the great joy of giving an opening invocation at Carl Reiner's 90th birthday. Those of you who were too young to know who Carl Reiner was, he was with Mel Brooks and with the Dick Van Dyke Show. He was a very well-known comedian in his day and comic writer in Hollywood. And it was his 90th birthday, I gave an invocation and someone in the audience said, why is a rabbi up there? Reiner's an atheist. And he jumped up on the stage and he put his arm around me and he said, I'm not an atheist, I'm a Jewish atheist. And that's different. <laughs> there you go. Um, there you go. Um, I, I, I love that. Um, so the modalities of what constitutes peoplehood are shift shaped shaping there they they've have take many permutations and formations so michal you hear up where rabbi wolpe just articulated um when do you think how do you think we currently understand jews currently living today right as opposed to those thousands of years ago understand this concept of peoplehood how does it manifest itself and when do you think it most manifests itself when when does it become most apparent this this conception of self as a collective uh, when does it when, when do we understand it? How can we understand it? Um, yeah, and thank you, thank you, Hanan, for having me, and it will be great to be here with you. Uh, I think I, I wanna emphasize again what the rabbi just mentioned about how the category of peoplehood and Judaism really challenges many of our conceptions uh, in the West, especially in the liberal West, uh, as to what it means to be a group. Um, and I, I wanna mention this because I think, I wanna speak about American Jewry for a second. I think for many American Jews, we have struggled in the past few decades with this notion of Judaism as a family. We've struggled with it, partially because we live in an environment where that is not the way that we speak about like accepted differences, right? America believes in freedom of religion in different groups. And so we, we haven't had the right language. And I think for many people, the language of peoplehood sometimes has been almost like a way to not think too much about it. Oh, Jewish peoplehood, okay? Yeah, we, we are this kind of group. I'm not gonna speak exactly too much about it, our obligation to each other. It's a, it sounds good, Jewish peoplehood, we can speak about it. We don't have to explain too much. Um, and part of what we have seen 
since October 7th has been a real awakening of the concept, not only as a word that we can say, but as something that feels incredibly visceral and incredibly true, as something that describes what it means to be a Jew today. So I know from me, from my uh, perspective, working with young people uh, in Manhattan, and also just a lot of many different communities, um, it's almost like there's been this theoretical concept that we were afraid to touch too much. And by we, I mean, I think Jewish leaders uh, were often afraid to touch too much questions of peoplehood and collectivity, and tended sometimes to err too much in talking about the sovereign Jewish self and individualism. And then you have this terrible, most horrific massacre in Israel. And that combined with the rising anti-Semitism uh, in America and around the world, it's been like a wake up call. You know, we speak, you know, use the word like woke, woke, it means like to be awake. So like the Jewish people are woke right now in terms of what it means to be part um, of a people and to have the obligations um, of peoplehood. So I really think that this has been um, a moment that has awakened many people. As a sociologist, I can tell you that even though I don't like this, um, the best way to make a group become cohesive and the best way to make members of a group care about each other is to give them an external enemy. So I don't I don't like this at all. I hate I hate thinking about anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews as something that strengthens peoplehood and collective Jewish identity. But it's really what we uh, what we have seen right now, um, and we are seeing. Um, for me, it's been really strengthening a source of resilience to see in many places that we might not have expected three months ago to see the bonds of peoplehood and collectivity and to see them right now so resilient and so strong. And part of where maybe our conversation will go or part of what we have to ask ourselves is what do we have to do to make sure that we don't forget uh, the lessons of this moment and the obligations of peoplehood. On that score, I wanna encourage everyone to please, um, if you have any questions, send them our way. I'll try to get to them in the latter, let's say 15 or 20 minutes of this call. But if something pops up that is, um, relevant to the conversation, I will I will ask it. And if you don't want your name, um, please write anonymous. Um, I, to your point, Micha, I you know I've often thought that you know I'm going to butcher the name Sarte, right? He's the one who said that uh, the anti-Semite makes the Jew. Um, right. and, and this Moshe, right? Uh, he first understood his own Jewish conception, self-conception. At what point? He grew up an Egyptian, but it wasn't until he saw another Jew being hit that he realized, and the, the language of the Torah, I don't have it in my hand, talks about brethren, ah, right? He sees one of his brothers is hit, and he, it, it awakens in him something. It is not an ideal scenario, right? Peoplehood shouldn't be formed, you know, at the, uh, at the barrel of a gun, and yet it seems as if that is the case. Rabbi Wolpe, what's, what's your sense? Is that, is that like an, an accurate um, representation? I think, that, I mean, it's deeply human. I think that that's how people work in general. Um, one, of the, one of the most powerful uh, mechanisms of identity formation is to not be them, right? I mean, even when you're a child, one of the ways you discover your I is not you. And so, yes, that works. But, but it is also true that the only reason that we have a people in the first place. I mean, it's not like there was a collectivity that was all of a sudden hated. No, we we started with a purpose. We started, you know, um, with with a sense of ourselves as being something that could be greater than what we were at the moment. And and I just want to 
invoke this wonderful essay that some of your listeners may know from Simon Ravidovich that he wrote many years ago called The Ever-Dying Jew. He said, in every generation, there's a Jew that says, we're the last, it's us, no one's coming after us. You know, Yud Lamed Gordon said, I'm writing in Hebrew, but no one will speak Hebrew after I die. He had no idea that there'd be millions of Hebrew speakers. And, and so we have always this systolic, diastolic, you know, we feel threatened and small and so on. But then magically, mysteriously, um, I remember, uh, uh, you know, when we had, when we were lucky enough to have Elie Wiesel as the 100th anniversary scholar at the synagogue, and he said, I never believed in the camps that would be in Israel. And when I got out of the camps, we thought we're never going to be able to free Soviet Jewry. And, and so the same thing here, it's like, this is a very painful, awful moment of mourning and of a sense of loss and a sense of tremendous anxiety about the hostages and their families and what they're going through. But at the same time, you can have a certain faith in the resilience of the Jewish people in the state of Israel. And I think we have to hold both at the same time. That is the anxiety and fear and the faith and hope. Yeah. I wanna, can I add something to what the rabbi Please. just said? Um, uh, rabbi David Hartman of Blessed Memory spoke often about the educational, I would say, choice of centering our Jewish identity and our Jewish communities is it going to be based on Sinai or is it going to be based on Auschwitz? And it's almost like there's two modalities there. And I want to just agree with you, Rabbi, that there is, there could be a temptation, right, to build Jewish identity around Auschwitz, around hatred, around anti-Semitism. And I, I agree that we have to be careful uh, around that. We have to both be attuned and aware that this is part of what's happening right now, this awakening um, of, of, uh, of collectivity and, and peoplehood. And at the same time, continue to insist uh, uh, that Sinai uh, and our resilience and our strength have to be our central organizing principle. Beautifully said. I agree. And I'm curious, Rabbi, if, if you can react to what Michal said earlier. Um, do you sense a sense of discomfort within, let's say, the organized Jewish community around the concept of Jewish peoplehood? Um, did you, did you notice that throughout your years as a rabbi? Is that a specifically American Jewish phenomenon, if that is the case? Well, I, I would say American Jewish and, and somewhat Western European Jewish as well. I mean, you find it sometimes sometimes in England, France, among some, some. it depends. Uh, there's also a fear there sometimes of expressing peoplehood. But the discomfort is because we've been told um, there, are, there are two levels to it. One is everyone wants to fit in. We're social creatures. And so we don't want to be too different. Like you can be a little different, but you don't want to be too different, right? Um, so just like parents who don't want their kids to be too religious, they can be a little, but not too. And so that's one is you want to fit in. And then the other part of it is that we have inherited this sense that, that it's exclusive and clicky. Um, nobody feels that about loving their family, but actually being able to love even wider than your family somehow all of a sudden becomes exclusive and clicky. And, and what I would say is quite the opposite. It's remarkable that you have created so many people who feel an obligation to take care of each other. And that doesn't mean that you feel no obligation to people outside, but you cannot love everyone equally, right? You can't love your family and the stranger on the same level. 
And what Judaism tried to do was expand the circle of, of not just love, but like deep love and, and caretaking love more widely than we would normally do if we just took care of our own families. And instead of it being, although sometimes it is a cause of discomfort, I think it should be a source of tremendous pride. Yeah. I, I, I want to add, if it's okay, a third uh, discomfort about why not everybody, but some people have been anxious about emphasizing collectivity. I've often sent um, anxiety, implicit or explicit, by educators and leaders who've expressed that they were nervous, that if they would insist on, on fake collectivity and this idea of a family, that they wouldn't be able to retain or engage young American Jews. It's almost like they've expressed, oh, young American Jews have already, you know, bought into, you know, very hyper individualism and it's all the sovereign Jewish self and it's all like a do-it-yourself Judaism. It's very subjective. So it's almost like they've, they've I, I, I have sensed that some people have conceded or assumed that the reality has changed in terms of what the young American Jews feel and want and as such de-emphasized it. But I, I personally feel like that's a category error. Um, and that that might be based on listening to like very loud voices on Twitter at times that we tend to listen to and then assume all the young people are there. Um, and that there's actually a lot of um, young Jews and Jews of every generation uh, in many different communities who have this sense, not a sense to exclude other people, but a sense of feeling like I belong to this extended family. Um, and that's part of what we've seen um, in terms of so much communal activity since October 7th. Yeah, it imposes on you obligations to be part mm -hmm. of a people. And, and I think that we're afraid to impose obligations. We're afraid to, to tell our children you have obligations. We tend to tell them you have rights, but obligations are harder, but that's, you know, that's essential to, uh, mm -hmm. to peoplehood and to the world. Yeah, Rabbi, I would add to that. I haven't, I, I have been thinking a lot. Um, I love Birthright Israel, and I love the idea that we've sent hundreds right. of thousands of diaspora Jews and we sent them to Israel and we told them this is your birthright. It's your birthright. Right. And I, I wish, and maybe we have to reconsider some of our language and I'll include myself here. This has to come hand in hand with it's your birthright and it's your obligation in return. Those mm -hmm. young um, IDF soldiers who, you know, join birthright trips, we are witnessing right now what it means for them that they are sacrificing life and limb for their country. And I think that we need to really reconsider the educational ethos that we have to have a sense of peoplehood that incorporates both a birthright um, and also obligations and responsibilities. A, a kind of a, a birth responsibility. Love, uh, you know, an organization called Birth Responsibility. It doesn't roll you just, the same right, way. Right. Good but branding. We just- uh, We'll work on that piece. Started we'll, a new one. We'll work on that piece, but it is an interesting point, um, right? This concept of the radical empathy also that you highlight, Michal, in your piece, right? In this um, in this time of um, deep trouble and in a time of, of deep pain, um, what is the obligation? What are the responsibilities of Jews who are not in Israel in this moment? Yeah, well, I, I think that, uh... I do think that empathy, and I mean like emotional empathy, uh, is, is a responsibility. I think that's one of the core responsibilities of being part of a family. That if my sister or my cousin or my aunt or my third cousin is in trouble, that it hurts me. It doesn't hurt me the way that I was if I was them, because that's impossible. 
um, but that we feel love uh, and care for each other so much that when they're in pain, it touches us. Um, and I think that that is, it's interesting. I think that when October 7th uh, happened, terrible massacre, people didn't need to be told to feel something. I think we all felt it, uh, no matter where we were. And to me, it's almost like that moment revealed a sense of peoplehood that was already there. Um, and that just like we saw it in a very, very sharp and intense way. Um, and part of what, what I think we need to be thinking about is how do we now move from something that we might all have felt viscerally and automatically and figure out as a community how to transform it into something that can outlast, right? That sort of immediate pain when something is so proximate. Uh, because there is compassion fatigue um, and there are new challenges that we are experiencing in our own backyard. And it's not always easy to kind of maintain that level of um, of empathy for me to think, well, yeah, it's been already a month, but my friends, you know, spouses are still in Miluim. So it hasn't, it's not over for them. Uh, so so, so I do think that we have to, um, to insist both for ourselves and for our communities uh, to continue to be engaged and to continue to be, we can develop empathy. It's not just something that happens, right? Part of the way that we develop it is to continue to, to not um, steer our eyes away from what happened, right? And to continue to look in the face to the great need and the great uh, suffering that is still being experienced. So I, I very much think this is a religious, spiritual kind of uh, obligation that we have right now. Rabbi Wolpe, in your piece, piggybacking off of what Michal just said, I think you, you sort of get to this notion of obligation through a slightly different lens. You said basically, and I'm going to read, after witnessing Hamas's gleeful butchery of Jews, we will see pictures from Gaza of tremendous destruction in the days to come. Many of us will be called upon to speak. What might we say? Is that an obligation, trying to figure out in part how American Jews respond to this particular moment in both word and deed? I think it absolutely is. And, and that would be, I mean, in some ways, American Jews have a dilemma that Jews in Israel do not. I mean, Jews in Israel obviously are under, I don't want to compare our two situations in any way um, in terms of the severity of the emotional impact or what people are going through. Jews in Israel, though, everybody knows everybody else is going through it. In America, you walk down the street and you think, am I the only person here that is like dying inside now and worrying about this or thinking about this? And so there is an obligation to community and also to speak up, to defend Jews in Israel so that we can create our own sort of vocal community here in the United States. And, and I have to say, when I see, I, I know maybe this is just me, I don't think so, but when I see on social media, someone that I had no idea was an Israel supporter, supporting Israel, it gives me such a, such a wonderful feeling, whether Jewish, Jewish, not Jewish, both, it gives me such a wonderful feeling. When I was, I was just teaching in New York yesterday, and you know, this uh, owner of a coffee shop was giving his proceeds to the IDF and all of his employees quit. And the next, and like, as soon as that was announced around the block, there were people waiting to get coffee from that coffee shop. And I think that's, that's what we can do. That is, I mean, I'm not gonna pick up a gun, my daughter doesn't serve in the IDF, but I can speak out. I can stand in line at that coffee shop to show people you are not going to intimidate us into being quiet. 
I can encourage other people to speak out. Obviously, we can donate money and go to Israel and show people and show up on Tuesday and let people at the march on the on the National Mall and let people know that our community is strong and and also that it extends beyond our own community. Because once again, I just want to reiterate, we're really good at identifying enemies and we're not so good at thanking friends. And we have a lot of friends and we should embrace them and lift them up and celebrate them and uh, and link arms with them. Michal, you agree? You disagree? Yeah, you know I, I, I agree with everything. And I think part of what the rabbi is saying is that, um, you know, courage is contagious and peoplehood is contagious, right? When, when we hear people getting up and saying things, uh, it gives you strength because you realize, well, there's maybe a lot of silence uh, and maybe what I'm feeling, I'm not alone. So I do think we need to take that seriously uh, and to raise our voices because it might help other people raise theirs. Rabbi, you talked about enemies, and I'm going to ask a question related to both of your vis-a-vis -vis the context of, uh, of Amalek. Uh, and there's a particular reason, because I think there's certain nomenclature um, that is going around um, that we often reference, we, we utilize in, in difficult times, we reflect upon, right? Amalek you know, attacked the Jewish people while they were in the desert, right? According to tradition, they attacked individuals who were in the back, uh, the women and the children. Um, Amalek is, again, it's featured centrally in both of your essays. And I think sometimes, and you correct me if I'm off base, Rabbi, some, how are we supposed to interpret its relevance in this particular moment? Like, are there any misconceptions that exist about a reference to Amalek? Um, how should those outside of the faith, outside of the community, outside of the people um, understand its reference when it's utilized and how should it not be used? So the way that it shouldn't be used is we were commanded to wipe out Amalek and we don't believe that about any other people, right? The whole point of you should wipe out Amalek is you may have other enemies, doesn't apply to them. Amalek is Amalek. But what is relevant about Amalek is that it was singled out not because, I mean, Israel went to war with a lot of people in ancient times. None of them are singled out the same way because Amalek's desire was to wipe out the Jewish people and to prey on those who were most defenseless. And, and I have to say that in terms of like the, the uh, both the mechanism of it and, and the theology in quotes of it, that's what jihadist Islam right now represents to the Jewish people. Um, it's not, I mean, it is not only, uh, nobody was flying over the fence saying two-state solution. That wasn't, that wasn't what Hamas wanted or what it wants. What it wants is to eliminate both the state of Israel and Jews elsewhere if it can. And so the eliminationist ideology is, I think, fairly referred to as, as Amalek adjacent at best. And we should use it just so that people know, um, if you live in America and you have Canada and Mexico and two oceans, it's really hard to understand what it is to have genocidal cults on the North and, and in Gaza and mildly hostile to very hostile states around you. And I think that in, to some extent, Americans don't believe in the reality of evil and, and Israelis do because they've experienced it. And so it's a little bit our job to let people know 
that these are not all evil people, but they are in the grip of an ideology that is evil and that has to be fought. And this is a civilizational struggle. Yeah. Uh, can I can I add something, Hanan? Um, I want also I want to go to your question. I think I will be uh, emphasize one aspect in which we have to think about Amalek as this kind of evil existing. Um, I, I do want to emphasize that I think part of what we have seen from critics of Israel at the moment is that when the language of Amalek is used to describe Hamas, people then accuse Israel of genocidal intent uh, because they they then go ahead and say uh, if Amalek was used in a certain way in the Bible uh, to talk about like wiping out the entire people, is, isn't that Israel what you're doing? And I think it's really important to emphasize that um, that the way, at least the way that I and many people, um, many many rabbis, many leaders uh, speak about Amalek, is really about this idea of evil. It's about not hiding the fact that this evil exists, but it doesn't come together with this call to say we're going to destroy an entire people. Uh, there's a, there's a difference there. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, my, my late teacher. Um, in one of his explanations to the, the the moment in the book of Exodus in which we are told that Amalek comes and attacks the Jewish people when they are weak, Rabbi Sachs talks about this. And he says, we are commanded to remember Amalek. And part of the memory that we have to have is that we might assume that everybody out there is like us. We might assume that there's people who all they want is to feed their kids and to you know send them to a good school and have a good future. And we might forget that there are people who are not rational actors and who have so much hate. We, we might forget that at some point the Nazis stopped using their resources to advance their war cause and use them just to exterminate more Jews for absolutely no reason. Hatred for no reason, baseless for hatred's sake. And that is part of the reason that we mentioned Amalek, to remind ourselves this kind of evil exists. At the same time, and I'll quote again Rabbi Sachs, who quoted his own teacher, Rabbi Rabinovich, and his understanding of Maimonides' understanding of the Mishnah, okay, it goes back uh, many, many generations. Uh, at the same time, right now, we cannot identify one particular people as a Malek. We do not follow the kind of idea that we're gonna destroy an entire people. Uh, we also have a lot of like traditions that say, for example, the descendant, some descendants of a Malek converted, joined the Jewish people. Um, so it's not this like nation that we're gonna go ahead um, and kind of, uh, Think of it in this in these terms, and we have to be very clear about it because part of our responsibility is both to fight Hamas and also to fight Hamas with our moral righteousness and and being clear with our own uh, tradition and our own ethical responsibility, and to insist that we have to remember uh, Amalek as an idea that this terrible evil exists, and that we cannot be naive to assume that everybody out there wants the things that we want and that we can negotiate rationally with this level of evil. And I, I wanna, I think that, that was beautifully said. I, I wanna add also a helpful phrase for people to know. First of all, in terms of hatred for the sake of hatred, if you want a good fancy English phrase, um, Coleridge in commenting on Iago uh, in Othello, he said he had motiveless malignancy. Hmm. So if you, you want a good phrase, uh, <laughs> can I spell that? I-A-G-O, Iago, <laughs> I know. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is one of the things I mentioned in the essay that Jews should know is that the rabbis say one who is kind to the cruel will end up being cruel to the kind. And if you want an illustration of that, had Israel 
not been as kind as they were in quotes to Hamas. In other words, had they been much, much, much more severe, then Hamas would not have been able to be cruel to the kind. And when people say, I mean, you don't have to wipe out Hamas, I just want them to remember that if you don't, years from now, or a year from now, or six months from now, or some, so at some point you will discover that having been kind to the cruel, you will end up being cruel to the kind. Yeah, uh, Rabbi, thank you for that. And I would add that the kind there includes not just, and the kind and the innocent, include not just Jewish people, but I right. think that uh, but I think that not um, not taking out Hamas and its ability to to promote terror hurts innocent Palestinians um, oh. and and so many people around the world. So I think Pretty that there's so. like this there's this insistence here, and, and I think there's so much of sometimes there's like a certain like naivete in the West and like in the liberal kind of like mindset that has been experienced so much tranquility, right? That we forget we forget here what it means to confront this type of enemy that has no qualms over, you know, that has not built a single shelter for its people, right? The, the Hamas leadership in Gaza, while they've been uh, built an entire city of underground tunnels, which is just horrific. I know, Michal, this might be unbelievable to you, but like when I first started as a rabbi, I thought, okay, anti-Semitism was my father's problem, but it's not going to be my problem. I mean, when you say who grew up in a different, I really grew up thinking that until all of a sudden I realized, no, it's not true. There was a momentary reprieve, but uh, that was it. Yeah, I uh, I always think that the first Pew study on Jewish Americans that came out in 2013, yeah. it didn't include questions about anti-Semitism. Right. And, yeah. and, and part of the reason, and I, I learned this from the people who ran it at Pew, is that they were told by Jewish leaders, it's not our issue anymore. Uh, and then, and then, you know, in the second iteration, of course, in the 2021, they 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 had to ask about it. Yeah. Uh, and now there's nobody in our communities who would deny that it's one of the pressing issues of our generation. Right. I want to uh, get to some of the questions, um, and we have a number of them. I also want to also note Talia Werber um, no, um, wrote to say that it's the 40th yard site of Mordechai uh, Mordechai Kaplan. Um, wow, I did not know that. That's beautiful to know. Whose writing deeply influenced our concepts of peoplehood. I, I wasn't aware yeah. of that now either. So thank you for that, Talia. Um, let's go through a few of these questions. And then um, and Anonymous asks, among Anonymous attendee, among younger American Jews, are we not seeing the opposite phenomenon in terms of peoplehood? So many young Jews are failing to connect with the horrors visited upon Israel and instead are finding more empathy with the population of Gaza. I think, Rabbi, I'm gonna first um, give that to you in part because you addressed this issue to a certain extent in your essay. Um, how would you respond to this anonymous question? It's, it's certainly true. I think it's undeniable. You see it clearly on college campuses. Some of the people at that protest are Jews um, and, uh, and, and they serve in, in some weird way as a shield for the uh, for the more anti-Semitic protests because they say, well, look, we have Jews standing here. Um, and part of this, I think, is enormous social pressure. You tend to be, you tend to do what your peers do. And, uh, and so many of them see that all their peers believe this and that's a way of fitting in. Um, and, and I think there is also, even in many Jews, especially in the diaspora, there is a deep discomfort with the idea of Jewish power. And 
when Jews are victims, that is okay. But the fact that Jews have this power is not really comfortable. And there's a discomfort with power in any case. And there's also a discomfort with the West, which is a whole larger question. And I think that the ideology of the far left progressive anti-Western um, outlook is very strong uh, on elite campuses and strong among Jews. Um, when I say the college campus, there are a lot of college campuses in America where you don't have this problem. It tends to be the elite campuses and I will give all of the uh, attendees two guesses as to which Jews tend to go to. You can can I, could I, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Well, before, I, before I guess, the, the, I do want to say something maybe a little bit different here that, that is important for me to acknowledge. I think that um, those uh, Jews who join hand in hand with groups that are supporting Hamas, and we should call it exactly what they're doing, supporting terrorism against Jews and other people. I think that those are a fringe group of young American Jews. Uh, I don't think they are representative uh, of where most of our young people are. And I think that we need to note that because in many ways we, I often speak with people who think that, you know, all young American Jews right. are, you know, are right. affiliated with If Not Now or JVP. And I'm like, that's not true. And not only is this a matter of honesty, but I think it's a matter of strategy and leadership. There are so many young Jews in campus and other places um, who, who have moral clarity. Uh, maybe they have some qualms about Jewish power, but they have no qualms over the fact that it's wrong to murder people as a form of resistance, um, or you know, th th they are seeing things. And I think that we need to figure out what it means to support our generation of young Jews um, who are seeing this clearly and to not kind of give too much of a stage, right, to the loud voices, because we could by mistake or unintentionally almost like strengthen them when we highlight them as like the future young people of our right. people, they, they are not, they are not. So we need to, on the one hand, I feel very strongly that we need to have red lines and there is no place in any of my communities for somebody who supports Hamas. There is no pluralism for that. And we need to be very, very clear about that and not be afraid that we're gonna lose the Jewish future. We are not gonna lose the Jewish future. And at the same time, we need to insist and invest right now, especially right now, even as we are helping Israel, we need to, at the same time, invest in uh, in young Jews uh, who are seeking to lead right now and to kind of like shape a new generation that's going to be, uh, that's going to have moral clarity on these issues. I, I think that's, go to that is absolutely true and a really important point. And I just want to say like at the Hillels, Jews are now flooding the Hillels yep. and Abad houses. And, and so, yes, we need to give them chizuk. We need to give them encouragement and strength. It is, again, the unfortunate reality that in times of sorrow and difficult moments, that's in part when people, yeah. I think, reclaim their Jewish uh, conception of self. Um, Suzanne Gordon says, not sure you want to cover this, which means I do. Uh, but when you speak of peoplehood, two Jews, three opinions is part of our ethos. I grapple with anti-Zionists and the only comfort I find with them occupying Grand Central and Congress is that they have, quote, the luxury to say, quote, not in my name. Since perhaps this concept of peoplehood is so strong that we don't harm one another for differences in opinion, I think they are misinformed and their bleeding heart is cutting off oxygen to their brain. Thoughts? I, I, you know what, I'll, I'm happy to 
to address sure. this. Um, I'll say like this. I think intellectually and theoretically, and in the past, I can make a case as to why anti-Zionism or non-Zionism, um, you know, can be an opinion in our community um, or even like, you know, part of our conversation or at least not excluded. But I think what has been crystal clear um, in October 7th and its aftermath is that so much of the voices and the energies of those who self-identify as anti-Zionist are being used as a way to support terror against Jews or to legitimate it. Or even, you know, in the best of cases to say, oh, terror against Jews is wrong, but don't forget this is Israel's fault, right? After like five paragraphs. Um, so so I, me, I, I'm in a place where I think that we need to establish new red lines in our community. I think we need to. And let me just be clear about what I mean by this. Um, for me, it's almost like if you, if anybody who's supporting terror or who believes that there is legitimacy to this form of resistance, right, in some way, there is like a red line there that cannot be crossed, even if they are naive or misguided. Part of, the, part of what having a red line does is that even as we kind of exclude certain extreme voices from our community, it comes with another obligation that those of us who disagree in smaller ways very much have to see ourselves as allies. So again, let me emphasize what I mean by this, that even as we say certain or, or these like anti-Zionist voices that are supporting terror are out of the camp, right? Everybody else, we might disagree, you know, what's the, the politics or the policy, what should happen in Israel, all of these kind of things. We don't have time for those like anymore. So I think we need like a new culture of pluralism um, that allows us to disagree on certain things, um, but at the same time that says like, that's it. Like we, we have seen <laughs> the mask come off um, as to like, like the main example, if not now, like their first tweet after October 7th, right? It was like to blame Israel. I'm like, what is this? There is no more excuses that we can give for these people. And sorry, I want to say one more thing without getting too much into like um, saying too many things, but I'll just say one more thing. Um, one argument that I've heard from people, which has, it's like, oh, well, in our Jewish communities, we haven't been complex enough or self-critical enough. And so we've, we haven't taught our kids in the right way. And because they were fed so much propaganda, they go and they become this other thing now. I just think that that is just wrong. I have never met a community that is more self-critical than the American Jewish community. Our education in the past decade, in so many of our spaces, okay, maybe this was true 30 years ago, okay? The last decade and a half, we have taught our young people so many difficult things and we have not done like Hasbara propaganda, you know what I mean? To like brainwash our people. So that, that is not true. And I think we have to have, um, at least I'll speak for myself, I'm in a place where I am not kind of like making those excuses anymore. I don't know if it matters to me so much if there's like a misguided naivete or something more sinister going on. What matters to me is this functionally helping support terror against Jews. Um, and when that happens, I think we need to have clear red lines. What do you think, what do you think of the concept of um, like support fatigue at some point down the road? Like, do you sense the possibility or the inevitability that over the course of time, as the war between Israel and Hamas continues to manifest, that what, what's, go, what's going to sustain that sense of peoplehood from uh, different pockets of our community? And especially if I can be frank, as, as, as the mortality numbers continue to rise in a certain direction and not the other. 
Either I mean, you want to take that? Certainly, it's open. certainly, look, the, 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 the more Israel can show that it is taking humanitarian measures, the better off we will be um, in terms of defending the continued military operation. But in the end, yes, it will get harder and harder. We all knew this from the very beginning. Um, we have to continue to make the case that we have made and hang on as long as we can, because the, the purpose of, uh, of uprooting Hamas is so vital to the stability of the region, not just to the stability of Israel, um, which is one of the reasons why you've heard many of the Arab states be much more muted in their criticism than would have been true you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, and in the end, what we sustain peoplehood the way we always try to. I look, if I could give any single advice, although no one's going to necessarily assume that this isn't, the single advice I would give you is if you're not a member of a synagogue, join a synagogue for God's sake. I don't care what your religious affiliation is or belief is or whatever. That's where the Jewish community has its most powerful locus. That's where you will find other Jews. And even if you go there to play basketball or you go there, it's Mordechai Kaplan's 40th anniversary, as Talia reminded us, um, and he was the one who proposed Jewish community centers, be with other Jews and learn how to create a community and a family with them and do that through a synagogue. That's what it means to have obligations as well as rights. Yeah, I just wanna emphasize what the rabbi just said. Um, I think that, uh, I think we have to think about peoplehood as a practice, right? It's not just something that happens or doesn't happen. So support, you know, it doesn't just happen or doesn't happen. And we have to invest in it. We really have to invest in it. We have to model it. Um, we have to make spaces for it. Um, last, last night, I hosted uh, about 80 young Jews who gathered together for Ashlashim uh, to mark, to mourn, to sing until very late at night. Uh, most of them did not know each other before October 7th. Um, and I think part of what this does is actually introduce this practice that we get together, we sing together, we mourn together, we pray together. Um, and and part of what, what I have been sharing with my people is um is that we have to get ready that this is going to be this will get harder and like you know we have martin luther king uh, in in his speeches uh he would often close them um by speaking about how the road will get harder and i've, I've been thinking about how that is a form of spiritual resilience to acknowledge things are hard now they're gonna get harder but that is that is history that has been most of history and part of what we have to do is we have to get ready for that I want to uh, sit, I had the opportunity to speak at the conference in Rabbi Sachs's honor at Bar Ilan. And, and the teaching of his that I quoted um, was that he has this beautiful comment about the Messiah where he quotes the poet Kenneth Minogue. The, po the poet Minogue said, you navigate by the stars even though you don't expect to end up at a star. In other words, there are certain ideas that we direct our life by, even though we know they may never be fulfilled. And he said the Messiah is like one of those. It's a, a star that you navigate by, whether we get there or not, is not in, our, not in our hands. And I feel the same way here. It's like Israel, the Jewish people, none of it will ever reach the perfect state that all of us imagine. But if we navigate by that idea, if we move ourselves along by that idea, then the world will be a much better place for Jews and for others than it would be if we took our eye off the star. I love that. That's phenomenal. Just one final question before we wrap up. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, Sapir prides itself on is producing essays that are not just diagnostic, but also prescriptive. 
So as we move forward uh, from here on out, day 31, 32, 33, since the massacre on October 7th, um, what prescriptions, what calls to action, what charges would you um, level to those in the Jewish community, whether they reside here in the United States and Israel around the world? What's, uh, what should we be keeping top of mind? Maybe let's start with, um, we'll do the inverse of how we started. So maybe we'll start with you, Michal, and then from there, we'll go to you, Rabbi Wolfie. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, uh, some prescriptions came up and I want to emphasize uh, what the rabbi said before to um, to become a member or join a Jewish community. Uh, I, I am telling a lot of young people right now who feel alone. Um, I tell them to have a Jewish community right now is not a luxury. Uh, this is what will allow you to be out there. So I want to encourage you, whether you're in this call uh, for yourself or for somebody else, um, there's a lot of Jewish communities who are eager to open up our arms uh, and to be together with each other right now, it is absolutely critical to, to have this source of spiritual resilience and strength. Uh, and then I'll just reiterate another idea that came up before, which is that courage is contagious. Um, and we need to remember that the more that each person in their way, in their circle speaks up and speaks up on behalf of life and, and decency and humanity, the more than other people will see it and will be less afraid to speak and the more people who do that, the more that we can like, we retake our public squares because so much of what we've seen in the past few years is that our public squares get taken up by extremist voices, which are not reflective of the majority. But when we only hear those voices, we think they are. And when we think that they reflect extremist voices, it makes us feel more scared and more alone and less able to remember the stars uh, to guide us. So join a Jewish community, encourage others to be in Jewish community, um, and really keep in mind the responsibility that the more each and every one of us speaks up, the easier that it is for others, and the more that we can transform uh, individual voices into movements um, that are loud and bright. Thank you, Michal. I, I want to start by saying more people should listen to Michal Bitton. That's my <laughs> conclusion from this, from this webinar. And I would say, in addition to that, internal and external, um, strengthen the Jewish community, which is something, by the way, that the Maimonides Fund has done brilliantly here and in Israel. Strengthen the alliances in the non-Jewish community also. Speak to your non-Jewish friends. Tell them how you feel and what it's like. And don't, uh, don't think that Jews are the only ones who can support Jews. It's really important to have uh, a wider circle of support than just ourselves. Um, and then just have hope. Remember what Rabbi Nachman said, if you believe that you can break things, then believe that you can heal them. So a lot is broken right now, but um, we've healed before. Beautiful. I want, thank you, Rabbi Wolpe. Thank you, Michal. I think what it boils down to is we should all exercise the muscle of Jewish peoplehood. And one very clear way to do that is by joining the rally um, next Tuesday, uh, November 14th at 1 p.m. in Washington, D.C. Um, if you're unable to do so, try to figure out a way to do so or to encourage others within your orbit to do so. And would encourage everyone else to please continue to read um, the content from Sapir and sapirjournal.org. Next week, we're going to put a pause in these weekly conversations and we're going to aim to have an event at 92 NY. So please be on the lookout for that. Um, and again, just want to express deep hakarat hatov to you, Michal, and to you, Rabbi Wolpe, for, uh, for your wisdom today. And I thank all of you, our listeners, for joining us as well.